0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: It's an extraordinary use of emergency power occurring in an extraordinary circumstance, Uh, a circumstance that this country has never faced before.
0: Does that agency have the power to at least say, look, the person next to you, they don't have to get vaccinated, but if they don't get vaccinated, they should be wearing a mask. They should be getting tested. And so they were wrong. I mean, they were wrong in that part of the case.
2: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law and the courts and the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover some of those issues at Slate, and we have had a busy new year. We've had the anniversary of January 6th with the Justice Department and the January 6th committee working to unearth what really happened and who to hold accountable. We've had voting rights on a collision course with the filibuster in the Senate. And we had fast-track cases about COVID mitigation efforts that were heard last Friday, decided this past Thursday night at the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, that latter question... COVID and how the government may or may not respond to a pandemic that is once again crushing healthcare systems, buckling supply chains. That's the topic of this week's show. And part of me wants to just suggest that if you never caught the episode just a few weeks ago with Richard Lazarus, you might give that a spin as well. Because While Richard was talking about environmental regulations, he could just as easily have been talking about health rules, and he proved, I think, pretty prophetic on helping us see the roadmap of how government agency rules are likely to be dismantled by this current Supreme Court. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to have a chance to listen to me chat with Mark Joseph Stern about State efforts to bar January 6 participants from holding office, as well as the refusal of Neil Gorsuch to mask up this week at the high court, and questions around voting rights legislation that are going to be stymied in the Senate. That segment is only accessible to Slate Plus members. Thank you so much for being the support we need at the magazine right now. But first, to covid So here are the numbers on Friday, according to the New York Times. An average of more than 803,000 COVID cases have been reported every day in the United States. That's an increase of 133% from just two weeks ago. 25 states and territories have now reported their highest weekly caseloads yet. Deaths are up 53% to an average of roughly 1,871 deaths per day Omicron is pushing hospitals close to their capacity limits in about two dozen states, according to new data posted by HHS. At least 80% of staffed hospital beds were occupied in 24 states on Thursday, and in 18 states and Washington, D.C., at least 85% of beds in adult intensive care units are full, with the most acute scarcity of beds happening in Alabama, Missouri, New Mexico, Rhode Island, and Texas. Now, my guess is that many, most of you are living in this, and our hearts on this show go out to you. Last Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard two cases about the Biden administration's efforts to mitigate all this, and it was fundamentally a tale of two totally separate realities. What do we
0: make of the fact that Congress, uh, OSHA has not uh, traditionally mandated other vaccines for other hazards that could pose a grave risk, some might say?
1: This is a pandemic in which nearly a million people have died. It is by far the greatest public health danger that this country uh, has faced in the last
0: century. The flu kills people every year. Other grave diseases do, too. Um, And there are vaccines against many, and we don't need to list them all.
1: But traditionally, OSHA has not regulated in this area. This is the policy that is um, most geared to stopping all this. I'm not saying the vaccines are unsafe. The FDA has approved them. It's found that they're safe. It's said that the, the benefits greatly outweigh the risks. I'm not contesting that in any way. I don't want to be misunderstood. There's nothing else that will perform that function better than incentivizing people strongly to vaccinate themselves. But is it not the case that these vaccines and every other vaccine of which I'm aware and many other medications have benefits and they also have risks? More and more people are dying every day. More and more people are getting sick every day. I don't mean to be dramatic here. I'm just sort of stating facts. It seems to me that the more and more uh, mandates that pop up in different agencies, it's fair. I wonder if it's not fair for us to look at the court as a general exercise of power by the federal government, and then ask the questions of, well, why doesn't Congress have a say in this, and why don't this, why doesn't this be the primary responsibility of the states? Courts are not politically accountable. Courts have not been elected. Courts have no epidemiological expertise. Why in the world would courts decide this question?
2: Late Thursday of this week, the court ruled in both cases. In one lawsuit, the court found by a 6 to 3 margin that the Biden administration's vaccine or testing mandate for employers with over 100 workers should be blocked. And that stymied a key prong of the White House's efforts to address the pandemic. In a separate, smaller case, in a five to four vote this time, the court allowed a much more limited mandate requiring healthcare workers at facilities that receive federal Medicare and Medicaid monies to be vaccinated. Joining us today to help understand where COVID is, where the Supreme Court is, where the country is is the wonderful Andy Slavitt. He is a former senior advisor to the White House's pandemic response team under President Biden. He's host of the award-winning In the Bubble podcast, And he's author of the book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Before serving on the Biden COVID-19 response team, Slavitt spent time as the acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services from 2015 to 2017. We have talked in very lawyerly ways on this show about very lawyerly questions around the possible dismantling of the administrative state and the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. This is not that show. Andy, I wanted to have you here this week to help us understand the reality in terms of Omicron, in terms of mitigation efforts, What is happening on the ground, all around us, as experts try to deal with this pandemic in real time? So welcome, first and foremost, to the podcast. I thank you. So I gave those numbers at the top of the show about where I think we are today. I think you told NPR uh, less than a month ago, we have to focus in on how full the ICUs are, how much we can prevent the ICUs from filling up, and the staff from getting overworked. That was what you were triangulating against in December. And I guess my question is, is that still what matters to you? And are we there or about there now?
0: Well, those numbers are just mind-boggling, aren't they? I mean... They're, they're almost hard to imagine. And they're both, of course, don't capture all the infections out there, as everyone knows. And sadly, they're only going to get worse before they get better. You know, we probably have, you know, three or four million, if not more, by some estimates, it's high size of 8 million people on some days that are getting positive infections. They're just not recording them. And that's mind-boggling. We have a 330 million person country. So we're talking about, anywhere from you know two to 3% of the of the country getting sick every day with this virus. And even though it is indeed a virus that is milder, it doesn't like to attack our lungs. It likes to stay in the upper airways, which makes it more spreadable. It means it does less damage to us. And that is combined with the fact that we've got a country that's, you know, for all of the arguing to and fro, it's largely vaccinated, at least among adults. And so it's less severe. But your point about the hospitals and the reason I think the ICUs are indeed the place for us to be watching and concerned about is because with large, large numbers of people getting the virus, that's enough, even mild cases, to push people into the hospital. Now, two types of people tend to be going into the hospital from all the data we've seen. It's not 100% true, but it's, it's darn close. People who are unvaccinated are uh, going to the hospital in much greater numbers and that includes by the way kids zero to five so let's not forget that there are people that can't be vaccinated and people with pre-existing medical conditions are also a large percentage of people even if they've been vaccinated there are complications and unless we get cold-hearted these were the same people that many of us fought for during the affordable care act versus these are people with pre-existing conditions. These are human beings. And unless we think, oh, thank God, it's not me. Uh, that's what God is here. Let's just remember at all times that th- that feeling of, oh, at least it's not me is, is one of the reasons why this virus spreads.
2: And maybe can you just give a sense because <laughs> I don't know anything about healthcare, uh, You know, the stories I'm hearing about folks who can't get necessary surgeries, folks who are standing in lines for ERs for a bed, supply chain disruptions that mean that basic equipment uh, uh, is not happening. I, I mean, we just keep hearing about doctors and nurses and folks in hospitals and how, to the extent that they're not testing positive, and so many of them are, I mean, this is tangibly, materially affecting healthcare for everyone, not just people who have COVID. We're there, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, this is a crisis in fast motion. And what that means is you can live in a community and on a Friday of one week, the, the danger level could be quite moderate. And on the Monday of the following week, you could be at crisis levels of spread. That's what exponential spread means. It's, it's not a concept that our brains naturally understand because you know, when you look outside, things look exactly the same. This is an invisible virus and you can't see things. But if you did go inside these hospitals, um, what you'd see in many communities are very simply staff that um, just simply can't take care of people. And so what happens is um, on that Friday, if you went into that hospital for something relatively serious, you could get some attention. On that following Monday, you'd be forced to triage. And first of all, many people triage themselves because no one wants to go near a hospital unless they need to these days. I would argue people don't want to go near a hospital any day, but particularly now. And and then, you know, hospitals are forced to triage. They do the best they can, but it's certainly not the time that you want to be, uh, you know, have a gallstone or, or anything like that. And that's a matter of, of, unfortunately, misfortune, not a matter of things that we're, we're doing to one another. So it's at a perilous time. I think it's going to pass relatively quickly, but we're going to to have the scars uh, from all this time. And so just as people's favorite restaurants are closed and their schools are closed and other things are closed because there aren't enough people to uh, operate them, the very same thing's happening in hospitals.
2: We'll be right back. Hey, folks, I'm Preet
1: Bharara, former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. On my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, I break down legal topics shaping today's news, and I'm joined by thought leaders to explore topics at the intersection of power, policy, and justice. In our increasingly complex world, clarity can feel elusive. My goal is to empower listeners with knowledge and insight during these transformative times. So I hope you'll join me every Monday and Thursday on Stay Tuned. Search for and follow Stay Tuned on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay informed. Stay empowered. Stay tuned.
2: Before we move on to the decisions on Thursday, I just want to flag that you, I think, are trying to make this point about the reality around us, what we perceive and what we can accurately assess and where we are wrong. And one of the tweets that I clocked last week when the court was hearing these two vaccine cases was your tweet that laid bare what we were all seeing. You tweeted, "'In today's Supreme Court case, lawyers who have COVID and aren't allowed in the Supreme Court building are arguing that other people should have to go to work with unvaccinated slash untested people.'" And I think your tweet captured the reality. You know, we had two oral advocates from two of the states who are resisting uh, uh, the vaccine or test mandate who couldn't come in because they tested positive. We had you know, the justices, with the exception of Justice Gorsuch, wearing masks, that the reality of what the justices themselves were actually experiencing their workplace didn't map on to how they were talking about other workplaces. And I guess I think it's it, it reminded me a little bit of – some of the language in the Heller, the gun case, where Justice Scalia was really scrupulous to say, but no matter what happens, it would be insane to let people bring guns into federal buildings. Like, that would be nuts, because I'm sitting in one. And I guess I just wondered if you could help us think through this just, I keep using the word split screen, but the reality that was happening in the court was so dissociated from the reality that you are describing out in the world.
0: Let me put it in this context: the the we can be, I think, critical of President Biden for anything we want to. He, you know, I think he wants to be held accountable. He cares in my in my conversations with him about one thing only, and that's the lives of Americans. And if, if anything, he runs towards these challenges. So he didn't predict Omicron, um, but you know, in the last few days, he's announced a billion new tests coming. He's announced the new testings are. He's um, he's created 20,000 testing sites, and then I think occasionally it would be useful for the media to contrast that with, say, Ron DeSantis, who made the decision that he's going to pay people a cash bonus who decide not to get vaccinated and lose their jobs, with with states that have outlawed uh, any amount of public health support, including mask mandates, with people who've taken. Power away from the school, from the public health officials, and giving it to school districts to decide whether kids should wear masks. I mean, these are people that are elongating the virus. And, and we saw last week. If you want to talk about theater, we saw a hearing last week where Dr. Fauci was in front of um, a Senate committee. And the the purpose of the committee was a valid one. It was to to basically put into focus the response of the administration and the crisis facing Americans. And Senator Marshall from Kansas thought the most important thing that Americans needed to hear about was whether or not he could find Tony Fauci's publicly available financial statements. So I think we have to remember that the first year of this crisis response was very different. We had a president who denied any accountability for the response. And those people are still out there and they're bringing cases to the Supreme Court to try to prevent public health actions, trying to keep our workplaces from being um, kept safe. And I just wonder if they were spending all this creative energy fighting the virus instead of fighting the people who are fighting the virus, we'd be in maybe a lot better place.
2: Before we talk about sort of the substance of what the court found in sort of saying that the OSHA mandate was an overreach and the HHS was not... But one of the things that was so weird to me in that first case, which was the OSHA case, uh, NFIB versus Department of Labor, which involves an emergency temporary standard, as you say, trying to respond to a a crisis that is morphing by the week – uh, the emergency rule that OSHA puts out required employers with 100 or more workers to give their staff a choice between getting the vaccine or weekly mask and testing regime in the workplace. 84 million people about would have been affected. And OSHA roots its own statutory authority to do this in a federal law that allows OSHA to protect employees from, quote, a grave danger resulting from, quote, physically harmful, quote, agents, quote, new hazard. Sounds kind of like we're in that budget it it. Um, and we have a group of red states, as you say, who file suit. And then the argument unfolds, and it is literally like my great uncles sitting around the dinner table bickering about risk, a thing they don't understand. And so then you get into fights about, oh, Sonia Sotomayor got the number of kids wrong, and oh, Neil Gorsuch may or may not have misstated how many people die as a result of seasonal flu. I mean— I guess I'm asking in the realm of theater what it's like to watch the theater of what should be a legal, statutory, constitutional conversation that is playing out with weird sound bites about whether I think this is more or less like the flu.
0: Well, look, I'm a, I'm a great respecter of the Constitution. I mean, and I think the idea that these are things that are running roughshod over the constitution are just wrong. These are authorities that the Congress gave to our agencies to act in emergencies. And we have a very conservative court. And these cases are formed by as much as justices don't like to admit it by public perception, by their own perceptions. And, you know, I I don't know who advised them. I'm sure that their clerks did some research for them to come out with these statements, but you know, These are not the people who should be making public health proclamations. They should be looking at the constitutionality of what was done, what was decided. And look, I'm I'm willing to accept the fact that sometimes the right thing that should happen can't happen because our laws don't allow it. That's unfortunate. But it wasn't the case here. Here, it was pretty obvious that we're sending people into a very hazardous situation. You know, don't picture your own workplace. Picture a meatpacking plant. Picture a clerk. At a store that's got to deal with hundreds and hundreds of people every day, picture people who are enclosed in basements at an Amazon warehouse, sorting packages with people next to them. Would you be comfortable there? And does the agency that in 1970 was given exactly the authorities that you described on it, does that agency have the power to at least say, look, the person next to you, they don't have to get vaccinated. But if they don't get vaccinated, they should be wearing a mask or they should be getting tested. And so they were wrong. I mean, they were wrong in that part of the case.
2: It seems to me that the nut of the unsigned six to three opinion in terms of the employers with more than 100 workers case seemed to be the court saying that OSHA exceeded its statutory authority because it only has jurisdiction over the workplace, but the pandemic exists both inside and outside the workplace, and it is not, therefore, the kind of, quote, grave danger envisioned by the statute, and it, quote, falls outside of OSHA's sphere of expertise. And the court found, just to quote, permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock, would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization, end quote. And OSHA, of course, put in heaps and heaps of evidence suggesting that, of course, COVID-19 poses special risks in most workplaces, Can you talk a little bit about this inside the workplace versus outside the workplace distinction that the court hinged pretty much this entire decision upon?
0: Well, it it doesn't pass our common sense test because in every place else I go, I can control my setting. I can decide whether I want to go into a particular store or not. I can decide whether or not I want to go into a movie theater or a concert or, or go to a gym to work out, I don't have a lot of choice into whether or not I have to go to my job. For most Americans, that's simply not an option. It's a place they're required to be. And, and it's because they're required to be there that we have this agency, OSHA, that's designed to ensure that those places are safe. And if it wasn't for OSHA, you know, there wouldn't be uh, nearly the precautions that we'd see around sharp equipment and machinery of children in the workplace when I mean, you have a lot of things that I think we all know need to be regulated and why this isn't one of them, because of this fine distinction that they're trying to draw, which says, well, this isn't a workplace hazard. This is a hazard hazard. Um, you know, it, it is a place for someone with an answer already in mind to go find an argument, as opposed to a person looking to answer what happens when you evaluate an honest argument.
2: And maybe that is a good segue, Andy, to the question about who decides. And if you read Neil Gorsuch's concurrence, at least in the OSHA case— For him, the central question is who decides. Nobody doubts that the COVID-19 pandemic has posed challenges for every American or that state, local, and national governments all have roles to play. The only question, writes Gorsuch, is whether an administrative agency in Washington, one charged with overseeing workplace safety may mandate the vaccination or regular testing of 84 million people, or whether, as 27 states before us submit, that work belongs to state and local governments across the country and the people's elected representatives in Congress. In other words, I guess what he's saying is, this is just this annoying outside agency in Washington. What do they know? Public health entities at the state and local level, no vastly more. And I guess I wanted to just have you walk us through, if you can, the differential between the expertise and maybe just help us understand why the Biden administration is making this case, that this really requires that centralized agency in Washington, D.C., and all the expertise it brings with it that it's not enough to have state and local governments and their expertise weighing in.
0: I mean, look, if you've talked to people who are supportive of the decision the justice has made, you know, they would say, you know, we always start with the premise that we have limited federal government and that states and localities therefore have all the powers not explicitly ascribed to the federal government and federal government agencies. And therefore, in their reading, Whether or not I agree with it is another matter. In their reading, you have to have very, very explicit powers designated by Congress. And so I think on those grounds, they were probably never going to decide that OSHA had the authority here um, unless there were the explicit words COVID-19 in the Constitution, which there are not. They had no escape on the other half of this decision and the decision around healthcare workers. I mean, it should have been a nine to zero vote. I mean, there's literally explicitly... The, the words given. But when there's not those words given, that's where the justices, I think, begin and end. Now, they have to say things for the record so that when people look back on this decision in 10, 20, 40, 50 years, they don't appear heartless, that they don't appear that they didn't care about public health, that they don't appear that they didn't think that these problems could get solved. And so they point to the fact that these things could easily be solved at the state and local level. Never mind the fact that Whatever state you live in, you don't have a lot of choice in what your state and local officials decide. And with a disease that spreads across boundaries quite easily, it doesn't make a lot of sense for this to be a scattershot patchwork of local decisions. But of course, there's the expertise at federal levels to make these decisions. And I really don't think that's something that anybody on the court can really deny, that there's that expertise in both places, at the federal level and at state and local levels. And you know, you might say if you wanted to squint your eyes and stretch it and say, "Well, but they can—they can be experts at the federal level on COVID nineteen and and pandemics and and virology, but they can't really be expert in every local condition. They can't be an expert enough to say that in San Diego, the hazard is this. That's what—that's what people in San Diego are designed to do. So you can make any argument you want." But unfortunately, it's not the argument that matters. I think they're just really cooking up logic to make it sound like um, they are not taking away the ability to manage this public health crisis.
2: We're pausing for a break. We'll be back with Andy Slavitt in just a couple of moments. If we turn for a minute to the second uh, decision, which is Biden versus Louisiana, and that is the mandate from HHS that healthcare facilities that get Medicaid and Medicare funds um, have to be vaccinated, the staff there, but includes medical and religious exemptions. Do you have a theory of why the court splits differently? In, in that case, the court says that the mandate, quote, fits neatly within the language of the statute. Is this just as simple as Justice Kagan's comment and argument that people who uh, get Medicaid and Medicare money and work with patients just shouldn't be allowed to kill people. Is it just that simple?
0: Well, I've signed on to an amicus brief on this topic, and I also ran the agency, as you mentioned in your your introduction, that, that runs Medicare. And it's as simple as the power of the purse. It's as simple as if you go to the store and you see a defective product, you don't have to spend your money on it. And if you're charged with spending taxpayer money, then you have a right to say, hey, I expect a certain level of standards for this money. I expect them to keep Medicare and Medicaid patients safe. Or why would I spend the money here? If I saw a hospital or nursing home that had, let's take some extremes, like no staff, no clinical staff, and they said, hey, here's your bill. I want to take care of Medicare patients. You'd say, no, of course I won't do that. Think about people who spend federal money. What if the Department of Defense ordered a fighter jet from Lockheed Martin and the fighter jet showed up and it didn't have any of the equipment in the dash and it was unsafe to fly, would we expect the Department of Defense to have to pay for that fighter jet? Of course not. So to me, this is very simply, it's the job of federal agencies who are spending this money to make sure they're spending it only on care that is safe for people. And it's hard to argue that people are safe going into facilities where there's a lot of unvaccinated staff.
2: And before we say goodbye, I want to just do a very quick speed round with you. Just let me know, practical effect of the OSHA mandate being set aside, what does that mean in the coming days?
0: Well, look, United Airlines, it was the first company, Scott Kirby, the CEO there, to decide to implement a vaccine mandate. And before he implemented that mandate, he had one person per week one employee die. Since he's implemented it to, I think, modest grumbling at the beginning, but quite frankly, it's been fairly quiet. He's had no deaths and dramatically reduced cases. And so arguably every employer who cares about their employees has the ability to implement this vaccine requirement. And so does every state and so does every local government. And so, you know, like everything else, like happened with Medicaid a few years back with Medicaid expansion, we're going to have the haves and the have-nots. If you live and work in states or for employers that care about public health and safety, you'll be able to go to a workplace that's much safer. And if you don't, you won't. So look, this, this case has been decided. It's, in my view, not the correct decision. But each of us has an, has, to, has to take accountability for making this country as safe as possible. And if you operate a workplace and you are willing to let people come into that workplace and potentially be the site of a super spreader event, shame on you.
2: Last question, and this is entirely self-serving, but for all the people who just want to hear you tell us <laughs> what to do the next couple of weeks, what are you? what is your of the moment uh, thought? And you can fold into this answer the chicken pox parties question, you know, let's just get all oh, get it. Everyone should get it. And maybe the coda to that question, which is the, what are you telling all the people who are operating under the I'm over it yeah. theory of COVID?
0: Look, it's understandable that people feel that way. Everybody who has a different opinion is can't be a bad person. People are feeling worn out and exhausted and they don't know when things end. And there's just been a surprise around every corner so you know these are all understandable feelings. Still, I wouldn't knowingly and purposely get uh, COVID if I could avoid it. I haven't so far, and I'm glad I haven't. Uh, but I would say this: if I get it, this is important to hear. You know, if you're if you're reasonably healthy and not elderly, and you get it, if you're vaccinated, you're going to be okay. You're not going to die, and you got risks of getting um, certainly sick. You got risks potentially even although I think they may be more modest of getting long-term symptoms of COVID. And I'm very sympathetic to that. My own son has, unfortunately, in in that situation. COVID over 15 months ago still has some lingering symptoms. But, you know, those are risks that we have been facing in different forms for a long time. There are people that have lingering symptoms from the flu. Everything we do from getting into a car to other things bring risks to them. So, I don't panic that if I got COVID, what scares me is me spreading COVID. And so if you do get it, um, you know, stay in for at least five days and and stay in until you are symptom free. Then if you have access to a test, take a test. And then you can go back and be around people again, be very careful around people who are in different circumstances and be very careful around the situation around children and particularly uh, those under five. Is really really challenging for parents. I've done a lot of episodes around this this recently, so everybody's got something in their circumstance—a friend, a kid, a, a this, a that, a travel—and and those are tricky situations. And and I guess I'd say this: increasingly, I believe that with all the tools at our disposal—masks, boosters, shots, soon antivirals—that you pick a thing that's important to you, there's a way to do it safely. And we'll get through the next few weeks. They'll be rough. I would suggest that these are not the few weeks that you want to go have your, you know, your raging mosh pit party. But with any luck, the big question is going to be how much immune protection did we receive from Omicron? And if the answer is quite a bit, then that's going to bode, I think, for likely a better year. Can't predict that yet, but that's what we're all hoping for. So. Finally, just be aware of your own mental health, your own sanity. And these are hard things and just hard things for you. They're hard for your friends. They're hard for your family. Um, they ag- aggregate, they add up. So do something nice for yourself. Do something nice for your friends. Do something nice for a stranger. And hopefully we'll be in a better place shortly.
2: Andy Slavitt is former senior advisor to the White House Pandemic Response Team under President Biden. He is host of the amazing award-winning In the Bubble podcast. He's author of the book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. And I have to confess, far better than a raging mosh pit party right now is this conversation that we just had. And I know you are crazy busy. So thank you for your time.
0: Thank you. Great to be here.
2: And that is a wrap for this week's episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham, Gabriel Roth is editorial director, Alicia Montgomery is executive producer, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, do hang on in there. Be kind to yourselves and to others.